0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFace podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 258, and today's guest is Lakshmi Shenoy, CEO of Embark Collective. The shift of founders building startups in other regions outside of Silicon Valley is an interesting trend that has been really taking shape, especially since the pandemic hit and working with remote employees really hit its stride. So what does it take to build a thriving tech ecosystem in a city or region? Well, it takes a lot of different components, plus you need the people who can really execute on a vision. Lakshmi is a builder of these ecosystems, from her time in Chicago to what she is doing now in terms of building up a very robust startup scene in Tampa Bay, Florida. As CEO of Embark Collective, she has helped to build out the vision of Jeff Finnick, who is the owner of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Today, Embark Collective is thriving with a 32,000 square foot facility and over 100 startups. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like detailed advice on how to build out a successful tech ecosystem, Lakshmi's background story and the foundational years of her career, her experience at 1871, which is Chicago's technology hub for over 450 startups, how she landed her current position at Embark Collective, and what they've accomplished over the four plus years, a deep dive into the tech scene in Tampa Bay, three tips on how founders should leverage their own local startup community, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, the VentureFizz Weekly Digest email is the must-subscribe email to keep you connected to the tech scene. You'll receive lots of information on companies, advice for your career, and other fun tidbits. Sign up at VentureFizz.com register. All right, well, without further ado, here's my interview with Lakshmi. Lakshmi, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because there is a lot going on in Tampa. There's two things going on, a thriving tech ecosystem and a thriving sports overall situation where every seems like every team is winning championships. And I don't know if that has to do with Tom Brady making the move.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry we took that from you.
0: You know what? Uh, Yeah, but you know what? I'm really happy about it because at first I was like, oh, really? But then I've seen his personality and how it's evolved where he is a lot more fun. Now it seems just he pokes fun at himself constantly, which is hysterical. And it just seems like it was the best thing he could have done for his own career. As far as, you know, legacy. Hey, I did it in new England. Now I'm doing it in Tampa and it's not just a one trick pony. It's, you know, he went deep in the playoffs. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited of how it all panned out because it just cemented his legacy as the goat. Um, But if you look at Tampa and how that ecosystem is thriving now, right? So, what do you think are the key elements for building a thriving tech scene for a region? Whether it's you know Atlanta wants to build it, or you know DC, or you know wherever, there's their key elements to make it all happen.
1: Yeah, I think that this is a great question and one that I give a lot of thought through uh, to each. I mean, honestly, each day, and um, I really divide it into three three things that have to happen in order to have a thriving tech startup scene in a in a region so the one is is we often take it for granted you need startups you need startups to be able to Form that thriving ecosystem. And so um, one of the strategies and one of the areas of focus for me coming to Tampa and the broader Tampa Bay region, um, where we have a much smaller number of startups that are in this community, is finding ways to grow the volume of startups here both by encouraging and creating supports for people locally to build startups, but also avenues to attract existing startups to this area. So sort of at that core concentric circle for me is the startups themselves and how do you grow the number? Because that ultimately is the energy and what makes a community thrive. But to support that growth and to, to support even just the development and the building of those startups in the first place, you do need that local set of stakeholders And I divide that into talent, into customers, and capital. And so finding ways to engage not only with Know, university talent or high school talent, uh, but also experienced talent—people uh, who have incredible inroads into industry, uh, and, but maybe not have worked in in the tech startup scene before. How do you leverage each of those skill sets to help startups grow? Then the same goes for for customers. I mean, the best way to grow a startup, in my opinion, is through revenue. So, how do you engage your local stakeholders? in the the in being early participants in trying out new technologies and then in the startup world we talk a lot about capital and so uh making sure at least locally we are starting to engage avenues for capital, whether it's angel investors or venture firms or even down to, down the line private equity firms as well. and then the last the last thing I really think is needed um, and this is oftentimes talked about in global studies where they are uh, starting to evaluate strong. Uh, startup ecosystems is global connectivity. And it's something that we can't take for granted, particularly as we've navigated through this pandemic, I think global connectivity has become more important than ever. and so, you know, you can grow to a certain point leveraging your local community, but if you really want to become a global solution, and that's what most tech companies should aspire to do, you need to make sure you've got that global, that same set of stakeholders. Um, available to you globally and so we as an organization tend to try to create that connectivity on behalf of the startups we serve so that we don't take a really insular focus and try to grow to the maximum of what our region can provide but instead the, help startups grow to the maximum of the, what the world can provide.
0: That is a great synopsis and I'm excited to talk to you and a bit about Tampa and how you've the progress you've made so far which is it's amazing I've been following uh, Embarks newsletter for at least a year if not longer and it just seems how much momentum is happening and I can see why now you need leadership with someone like you that has taken a systematic approach to it not just geez I hope people build companies here and just kind of kick back no what you're doing is definitely a, a conservative effort so well before we get into that let's talk about your background so let's rewind the clock and like where did you grow up what were you like as a child
1: Absolutely. Uh, so I grew up outside of the city of Chicago, about an hour west of Chicago. Um, I'm the child of immigrants. My, my late father was a scientist. My mother is uh she's a retired librarian. Uh so very much a household that embraced learning. And you know, with a father who's a scientist, you get very exposed to Solving problems and the experimental mindset early on, and so most of my childhood, I spent the weekends at the national lab we worked with, and my pastime was writing on whiteboards. So we should have seen the writing on the proverbial whiteboard that I was going to end up in the startup world because it seemed to be my destiny. Um, And you know, as a child, I was I was pretty uh, social, and I was uh, very very curious, and oftentimes getting into trouble. So also perhaps signals that startup world, the entrepreneurship world would be where I I netted out.
0: That's awesome. And then you went on to study at the University of Chicago. So what did you study there?
1: I studied sociology, which uh, is a great field for somebody who loves patterns is what I've realized. I, I think the thing that really drew me To people to to sociology is that I just am really fascinated by people and groups of people, and so just the 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 learnings that you have while you're studying sociology are spot on with that interest set Um, and so I really had a great time. I wouldn't say that it was, I, I, I must inadvertently use the learnings from my sociology degree today, but it's definitely very different than if I studied accounting or something a little bit more practical, but I loved every second of that experience.
0: So what did you do coming out of your undergraduate degree?
1: So I uh, coming out well with a sociology degree, there's not that many employers that are knocking on your door. So uh, what I did is upon graduating, I uh, took an internship at Leo Burnett, the global ad agency and they told me if you work hard and you prove that you can do the job it will turn into an entry level offer at the end of your internship so while my peers might have been doing more fancy things with investment banking and consulting and um you know they were already set with their jobs in the in their senior year of of school i was Ra- upon graduating, going as an intern and then just working my ass off to get that job and luckily that came through um, And that was a pretty that was a pretty unique experience because in advertising my client was Philip Morris. so I was working on tobacco. Um, and what that really taught me is that you can you know, we, the, oftentimes they were told think outside the box. Well, when you're working in a regulated uh, industry like tobacco, you cannot, you legally cannot think outside the box. Uh, and so, what it taught me was to be really creative within the confines of the box that you're given. And um, I had an incredible experience uh, in advertising. And even though my role was technically in more of the client facing side of the business, I, um, got the opportunity to do copywriting. I'm, and, and that to me is just, I'm a, I'm a creative person by nature. And so that was just a ton of fun. Um, and, and I had just some of the wildest, most, uh, exciting times in my career when I was just starting out in advertising.
0: All right. So then you decide go to, to B school. So you went to HBS. So what was the decision there? why did you decide to go to Harvard business school?
1: yeah so it's interesting to have um i i have the benefit of being both a very creative person but also um you know I'm, i i i like to i like to build things um and so that that's what sort of takes into account more of a, a business mind and so even before i w- had decided to go to to harvard for business school i was trying to decide should i get a master's in finance or a master's in business administration. Those are my two options. And so those it's kind of wildly different. Um, it was definitely a fork in the road for me. Um, and I ended up getting the MBA and going that route because I thought it would be an easier path for me. I, the the world of getting your MFA can be very competitive. Um, and so uh, people are always surprised to hear that I, I could have been a writer, uh, but instead I ended up a CEO. Um, and but but going to to business school and the decision to go to business school was really because I was acutely aware while I was you know only a few years of work experience in the advertising world that I didn't know what I didn't know, and I wasn't confident that staying the course in the current work trajectory that I had would teach me everything I wasn't being exposed to. Um, and so that's the reason why I wanted to go get a master's degree, uh, just because I knew I had more to learn. Um, and then I really had, I was was so incredibly grateful to have been able to go through the Harvard Business School experience, um, because I really think that that ended up being incredibly formative to how I lead today. Um, And so that is a crash course in general management, and you get such exposure to a variety of different topics. And... It was, I I think in this role that I am in currently as a CEO, I am truly putting my MBA to use every single day, whether it's consciously or unconsciously. So I'm making up for the fact that my sociology degree was a little bit um, more for my personal interests and um, the MBA is definitely getting its money's worth.
0: Yeah, and and HBS, it certainly has gone through a, a you know transformation where there's so much more entrepreneurial activity with the Harvard iLab and other key elements that are bringing it to the fold. Whereas um, you know the history of management consulting and investment banking was the career path. It's not always the case now at HBS, which is great.
1: Absolutely, and i i started um, I started at HBS uh, in August of two thousand eight so this is as the financial crisis is starting um and so we as students were watching these institutions just crumble and uh you felt this universal feeling across our class that maybe we can't rely on these stable institutions for future employment and so we have a we have a really high percentage of of uh of of alumni in my class, who are now entrepreneurs, probably very much formed by the experience that we went through with the with the 08 crisis.
0: Yeah, I and mean, that's a that's a conversation for another day that I'm always fascinated by. Of when you enter and leave school, whether it's your undergrad, or, you know, advanced degrees, it has such a major impact to one's career, based on timing of it, the economic conditions, but that's a whole different podcast. Anyway, so what did you after uh, B school?
1: So after business school, I moved to New York City. I always feel like I I, I knew I wanted to try out New York City, just to to say I did. Um, And I was able to work at Time, Inc., which at the time was owned by Time Warner. So Time, Inc. is the holding company or was the holding company for uh, magazine publications like Time and Sports Illustrated and People. Um, So really big household names. And it was a fascinating time to work in the magazine industry because it it was the time when magazines were first going to the tablet. So the iPad had been um, announced and the the Kindle had been announced. And so all of a sudden um, paper magazines were no longer the norm. And it was a really fascinating time to navigate. uh, It was probably my first experience of a, a disrupted industry in that I was watching a model that very much depended on owning the customer. The magazines make money because advertisers are know that the magazines really know their customers well. And with the advent of tablets, There was the question of who owns the customer? Is it the magazine or is it the tablet manufacturer, the Apple, Amazon, Google tablet manufacturer? And so that debate was the one that I was in the middle of while I was there. And so a really fascinating moment to watch uh, an entire industry realize we've got to figure out a way forward, and it might look different than the way that we have grown to date. Uh, and so I think that got me really comfortable with this idea of we we can't assume that work, what worked in the past will work in the future.
0: And then from there, you went to profit. So uh, what was profit all about?
1: So Profit is a, a really great growth strategy consulting firm um, that's headquartered out of San Francisco. And for me, it was an opportunity to join their Chicago office, um, and which got me home, which got me to where I'm from. Um, and so I was working on larger clients, uh, larger corporate clients while I was at Profit, helping them build new brands within the organization, um, helping them with... Brands, architecture, marketing, um, digital strategy, messaging, uh, everything around the, the lines of how do you grow brands. Um, and so I worked on so many different clients there. It was a really fun, uh, you know, if you have a variety of in- interests, consulting is a good way to just uh, be able to, to, to find out, you know, which of these industries is the most interesting to me. Um, so I I really appreciated sort of everything that I was able to learn. But consulting's hard. It's not for everyone. And uh, most people don't make it long term, myself included. Um, so at a certain point I I knew, okay, maybe it's time for me to move on.
0: And then into the heart of the Chicago tech ecosystem at 1871. So if people aren't familiar with 1871, like what what is it? And what was your role over that stretch of time?
1: 1871, so it's named for the year of the Chicago Fire. So for the city of Chicago, while it's, yes, it's the it's a, it's a date that signifies tragedy, it's also a date that signifies rebirth, because the entire city was burned down, so we had to build a new city. Um, and so that was really exciting and sort of a symbol of resurgence. Um, and so it started in 2012, at the organization of 1871, and it started as a startup hub, as a way to retain talent for the the Illinois market? If you looked at the brain drain that was happening in Illinois, similar to other states that were navigating similar issues, um, they were losing great talent to California and oftentimes Boston and New York. What could we do to um, really help the community retain very smart individuals and allow them to find great opportunities that are going to be satisfying and allow them to really build the community right there in Chicago. So that was the start of of 1871. Um, And, you know, all, all before, while I was doing all of my more corporate work, my day jobs. Um, I, I've always been building things on the side. And um, I actually, when I started working at Leo Burnett, I, I started building a, a restaurant review website for the city of Chicago, um, which I was so it was the necessary creative outlet that I needed to have. I, I mentioned to you that I, I love to write. And so I needed to have a little of that in my life to be able to to do that. And so I kept that going for many years. And even when I wasn't running that site, I was working to advise different startups from friends and other people in my community. Um, So when the opportunity at 1871 came through, I said, I think I'm ready to leave the traditional corporate world and really take what I'm passionate about and make that less of my side hustle and more of my full-time commitment.
0: All right. So what did you work on there? Like, what was your role? Because this is a an organization that eventually, I think there's over 500 early stage companies with this organization. So it's obviously thriving. So what was your role and some of the things that you accomplished along the way?
1: So my my technical title was uh Vice President of Business Development and Strategy but what that really translated to was um me will do whatever has to be done. Um so <laughs> it was uh it was very it was uh, a definitely a jack of all trades role. Uh I worked uh I worked as the right hand to the CEO Howard Tolman um who was from, at 1871 from 2014 to 2018 and um uh and it was incredible because what we were able to do during that time was grow the the startup population at 1871 from about 250 companies to 500 companies. Um, We also grew the footprint, the physical footprint of 1871. Um, And so we added uh, a couple of additions to the physical space uh, because it was it was gr- growing to support 500 companies, so we did need that additional space. So that got me really comfortable with um, the world of construction buildouts skill sets that I never knew I would have later down the line. Um, and then I got to build new programs for 1871. The one that I'm most proud of is called wisdom and it still exists today. And that is a program to support women founders. Um, and so it's really exciting to be able to, to have some sort of fingerprint on, um, an organization in that way. And, uh, I still stay really close to the team there and, and uh, love watching the success of the organization.
0: Cause it's, it's a business incubator, but it's not like they're like, they don't take equity in their companies Correct. that are there. Right. So it's, um they provide the office space. So I assume there's gotta be like some type of membership fee to be part of 1871. You get programming and lots of other great benefits, Access, you know, the VC funds are there, right? Like universities have outposts there too, I assume.
1: Yeah, you know, I think the beauty of 1871 is that it's the central landing zone for the startup community in in Chicago. And so you're 100 percent right. It's the convening of not just startups, but also venture funds and universities and corporations. And in addition to the physical space, they have this really robust volunteer mentor network and they do quite a bit of programming. Um, And so it's it's really uh, a choose your own adventure as you navigate the resources of 1871 to really align with what you need rather than, um, you know, the traditional programs where you would have like a 12 to 14 week curriculum. Um, you know, it might be embedded into some of the programs within 1871, but it's not an, it's not necessary of every company that's coming through there.
0: Got it, okay. All right, so how did you get involved with Embark Collective? So, um, you know, you're from Chicago, helping 1871 thrive, you know, Tampa, you know, is a growing ecosystem, but, uh, you know, you were already deep in the weeds of Chicago. So what led you to, to move?
1: Absolutely. So the story is a bit random, um, from my perspective and very purposeful from the other party's perspective. So, um, i'm i'm living my life in chicago and um, one day on my calendar i had to give a tour um, and i was really excited because the tour was for um, a gentleman named jeff finnick and he um has this Really amazing career in uh, in finance, and then had recently purchased the Tampa Bay Lightning hockey team. So I thought, wow, a sports owner—that's really exciting. And so I was I was thrilled to give that tour, and I met with him and toured him around 1871, and really shared just the experience of what it was like to build and be a part of an organization like that. Um, And then, but behind the scenes on his side, um, he was doing something really monumental. Uh, He was, he had purchased the Tampa Bay Lightning uh, in 2008, I believe. I might have that date wrong. And uh, he also, in doing that, saw that in downtown Tampa, there were just, there was just this open opportunity to develop some of the the area into into a great place to work and build. And so he sort of put on a real estate hat and said, wait, there's some empty parcels of land. What could we do with them? And rather than just build a regular development, um, he was really inspired by the Walkable Cities book and just this mindset of how do you create a community that uh, puts wellness and uh, sustainability at the forefront of how it is built. And that was the impetus of a development called Water Street, Tampa, which is nine million square feet of um, of space that would double the size of downtown Tampa. Um, so he had this vision of let's create a great place to build, uh, to live and to work. But if we're gonna do that, we also need to create a great place for people and an avenue to to create opportunities for people. And given that startups are the single source of net new job creation in the US, it isn't surprising that he looked at different startup models around the country and that's what brought him to Chicago. So he had a very deliberate path to get to 1871. And when we met, uh, we had a really great conversation, and then he reached out about a year after that conversation and said, hey, I have this opportunity to build a startup hub from scratch for this region. Would you be interested in taking the lead on this? And for someone like me who um, really needed to push to be able to, to take a chance on my own development and take a chance on building something myself rather than following along someone else's vision. It was this incredibly amazing yet scary opportunity that um, I really have to credit my husband for pushing me and saying, just try it. And so we in 2018 said yes to the opportunity and we moved from Chicago to Tampa um, and, and We had this blank slate in terms of what could be built and what has emerged is Embark Collective, which is really exciting to see that the vision came to life. It's almost like we had a plan.
0: Yeah. Like when I was preparing for this interview, I was listening to some of your podcasts, like probably six, seven, eight months since you had landed in Tampa, and to see, you know, hear the vision, but to hear how it's actually taken shape and it's thriving now. So kudos to you and the others that were. Having this vision, you know, it's one thing to have a vision, it's another thing to execute. So, where are things today with Embark Collective as far as number of companies? And, you know, because it is a nonprofit,
1: right? That's correct. So, Embark Collective is structured as an education nonprofit, really, because you know, at the, at the the first question you asked me was around, you know, what is it going to take for a thriving eco startup ecosystem to emerge, and the what I told you is we need to have a volume of startups, and so what I wanted to do is work on a model that was going to support startup growth um, in terms of the number of companies, and so uh, by creating a nonprofit model where we can really subsidize the cost of the benefits to the startups, what we're doing is removing barriers for people to say yes to trying out startup entrepreneurship. And so that was very intentional in terms of why we decided to build as a, as a non-profit. But the organization today, so we, uh, we officially launched in 2019. I call that our soft opening um, because we are our space which we have a thirty-two thousand square foot hub in downtown tampa that wasn't finished until 2020 so so what we wanted to do was provide all of the services that we could without the space. And back in 2019, we started with 25 companies, today we serve 125 companies, um, which is really exciting. It also makes my head spin because on a given day, I'm thinking about all the 125 of them. Uh, But what we've been able to do is really rethink the model for startup support. And so we didn't follow traditional support models in building out a set curriculum and building a volunteer uh, mentor roster. What we instead decided to do is say, we won't have a curriculum. And instead, every company that comes to Embark Collective is gonna outline for us their short and long-term goals. And we're going to help them based on those goals. And the reason for that is just because we have such a diversity of different types of founders. We have some, com- some founders that are straight out of school, and we have other founders who have 40 years of work experience. And so one type of program, one 12-week curriculum, just wouldn't serve them equally. So that's why we took this more bespoke model. And then the other thing that we did is instead of creating a volunteer mentor network, what we did is we said, we're going to actually vet startup operators to serve as paid coaches at Embark Collective. And that's a really important thing for early stage ecosystems to be thinking about. Because we don't have this huge population of people who have built tech companies um, that are in this area right now. And if they, if we have, we definitely have some population, but they're busy, they're doing really cool things. We can't expect them to have the ability to um, volunteer their time on a consistent basis, especially given the population that we serve of 125 companies. So, what we d- did instead is we were able to identify really strong startup operators and recruit them to our staff. And those startup operators cover the function areas that are are really important for building an early stage startup. So everything from strategy to product development, talent strategy to brand marketing. Um, We even have a wellness and burnout prevention coach coach on our team. Uh, So we really cover the gamut of the things that are important to an early stage founder. Um, So that is That's sort of the the mindset that we've taken is that let's create this bespoke approach with this group of of paid coaches that creates accountability, consistency, as well as quality, because we get to vet everybody that is coaching. And it um, really is the the thing that differentiates ourselves from um, truly any other support uh, organization out there.
0: It's a model that makes a lot of sense, and I think other tech hubs need to pay attention. And if they are looking to build something of significance, this type of model where it's a nonprofit, and you're building such a rich level of programming for these founders, to hopefully take advantage of and give access to other key elements of building a company. So if you look at the tech scene broadly in Tampa now, like, like one of the things that's important as well is to have like, you know, pillar tech companies that are hiring, growing, and maybe getting to the point where they have an exit and people have equity and they, you know earn something that allows them the flexibility to go build their own startup, right? So who are those some of those companies, whether it's Embark or outside of Embark that are in Tampa?
1: Yeah, we have a a really exciting um, group of of companies. The pillar company is the one that I oftentimes really hold in in the highest regard, is ReliaQuest, uh, a cybersecurity company. Um, The reason why I hold them in such high regard is A, they're they're building uh, a SaaS technology product that is scaling so, so quickly. Um, They're probably one of the highest growth companies in the Tampa Bay region. Uh, But also, their their founder is the chairman of Embark Collectives Board. Um, And so I really benefit from Brian Murphy, the CEO and founder of ReliaQuest, his insights and his approach to building, and he he very much held off on taking external funding at the beginning of building the company. Really focusing in on ensuring he could build something, uh, a repeatable sales process with his existing customers, and um, and I just really appreciate that mindset in terms of let me let me make sure I have built something that can scale and and he'll be the first to tell you it's really really hard and and you know he's he made incredible sacrifices to go that approach but what the the result of that is this high growth company he's eventually taken on um, a pretty large sums of capital, but the the growth is incredible. And the culture and the support of their customers is incredible as well. So I think they are just such a strong model for the startups at Embark Collective of a way to build uh, a company that is here here to stay.
0: Now, what about access to capital? So um, there was a company just announced a couple of days ago, Coherent, that raised a $75 million Series B located in Tampa. There are no code software as a service provider, raising from Maverick Capital who led the round. So access to capital has been a big challenge for other ecosystems where, yeah, maybe they have the universities, but they don't have the investors or there's no investors outside of the region that are paying attention to companies locally. So so what, what access to capital is is Tampa providing?
1: So, locally, we have definitely made some improvements as it relates to um, access to capital. So, um, one of the the longer term funds that have been around is Florida Funders, um, and they continue to grow. And I think they're considered to be the most active investor in the state of Florida. But since then, and at least since I've moved down to Florida, there's been new uh, venture funds that have emerged locally, like Tampa Bay Ventures, um, as well as Druid Ventures, which focuses on Web3 investments. Um, So it's been really nice to see the uh, that the local venture uh, scene is starting to grow, which is really critical because we want to make sure that you know that locally we can create founder-friendly deals for the startups that we're supporting. And so knowing that that can happen is inc- is incredibly satisfying and, and a good way to retain companies here. Uh, but I'll also be the first to to tell companies that you know, leverage the local venture scene, but also make sure you keep connectivity with national investors as well. So at Embark Collective, we work with about 200 venture funds, uh, precede to series A around the country, making sure that we're making the right introductions from our companies to those funds, knowing that you may not get all of your capital in one location. And so making sure that the companies we support are keeping their options open.
0: How about the talent pool? That's the other key element here of what we're talking about. Um, You know, whether it's I'm a startup at Embark or some of the companies that have, um, you know, built an outpost like Drift has a strong presence in Tampa now, too. So, what's the access to talent? Uh, Because that's a big draw for companies to, you know, build a company as well.
1: The access to talent question is really an interesting one because it's changed so much over the course of the past two years. So two years ago, I'd probably focus in on the university population and with the University of South Florida and the University of Central Florida and the University of Florida in such near proximity to Tampa, you have this huge population of of really smart students that you could be recruiting. But what's also very interesting that's happened over the past two years is the influx of individuals coming down down to Florida. It's it's become so pronounced that we at Embark Collective have built what we call our tech transplant network. And we're part of a a larger initiative called High Tampa Bay, which is just there to welcome new people from the tech world to Tampa Bay, because we have so many people migrating down each week. Uh, And so that's been a really interesting population to plug in. Many are coming with remote jobs, and so they're not necessarily looking for new opportunities at this moment. Others are ready for, for exploring what's available here, um, and so by making a concerted effort to connect that that new community of, of people who've recently relocated here um, and are holding tech jobs um, and are coming from major metros around the country, I think we're going to, we're sort of creating the nucleus for, you know, when they're ready to look for Something new. Hopefully, they can pick a role, whether they're building a company from scratch or joining an existing startup. Um, I hope that those are considerations for them.
0: Well, if you are new to the ecosystem, I guess specific to Tampa, like like what should people do? Uh, like, what networking advice would you have for someone that's recently moved there? You know, how should someone leverage their local ecosystem to the greatest benefit possible?
1: Absolutely. It's fun because I I actually just wrote a piece about this um, in Switch the Future. And so I gave three tips about how do you leverage your local ecosystem. And so the one thing I would say is don't recreate the wheel. If you're a founder, don't try to figure things out yourself. Instead, just ask fellow founders. If you need an attorney, if you need an accountant, whatever you need, Somebody else has already had to navigate through this. So leverage the work that they've already done and save yourself the time. Uh, The second thing is just it's really lonely being a founder. And so I think if you're especially in a new ecosystem, making sure that you find a community and it can be an established community like Something you'd find in the startup hub, like Embark Collective, or it can be more organic. There's so many founder dinners that pop up, um, different meetup groups, and so. But figuring out a way for you to get support, not only for the building of the business, but also just how mentally taxing building a company is, um, you just want to make sure that you've got that support in place from the get-go. And then the last thing is just around: don't operate in the bubble. So when you're trying to leverage your local ecosystem, I think the cool thing about doing that is that you're exposing yourself to other industries that might not be your industry. And you can learn so much about that. At 1871, we called that lateral learning. And so making sure that you are leveraging the local ecosystem to learn and to get exposure to things that aren't in your everyday that are going to broaden your thinking and create new ideas as you're building your company. But those are the three things that I would recommend.
0: All right. What are three apps that you can't live without?
1: Um. So I, I, I forget things all the time. Um, and I i actually, even during this podcast, I was thinking, oh no, I forgot to do something. And so I use this app called Twos, which is actually an Embark Collective member company, but it's a solution to be able to remember everything that you're supposed to remember in a really intuitive way. So it's gonna, you, you don't need to use your Apple Notes app anymore. Instead, download Twos and you can use that. Um, How do you
0: spell that? Because I'm going to download T-W-O-S. it.
1: T-W-O-S. Okay. And then um, Slack, obviously. I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't put Slack in my list. And then the other one that is is really helping me with feeling like I have control over my life is this app called Simplify. It's I've always it's a financial um, tracking tool, so I'm always like you know, where, what am I spending? And, um, this one I found, I've tried a whole bunch of them and this one i found to be really helpful. And so I'm in that app every single day, um, just so that I can feel like I have some peace of mind about, um, where money is going.
0: All right. Any podcast and book recommendations?
1: So book recommendations for sure. Um, I just finished exit right by Mark Appler and Mert Azari. Uh, so two, Chicago entrepreneurs, venture capitalists who wrote this playbook on how a company should navigate the exit process. We talk so much about how to raise capital, but we just never talk about how do you actually sell your company? And so this was the first playbook that I felt like was just this incredibly rich uh, approach to helping a founder think through all aspects of everything from the the tactical to the the mental side of selling your company. Um, and we were lucky enough yesterday to do a book talk with Mark Ackler um, uh, on the book. And so that was really exciting to, to be able to have just finished the book and then be able to ask all of our questions to the author. Um, and that was a, a fun thing to be able to bring. To the embark collective membership.
0: I totally agree. There's so much out there about raising capital, but the actual sale of your company is so and I, when I talk to founders that have had an exit, I always like lean into that. I'm like, so how did the conversation even start? Like, was it like a we want to talk about a strategic partnership that led to them actually wanting to acquire? It. Like, I'm always fascinated. Like, how did were you out there pitching your company to be sold? You know, it's like it's one of these like mysteries of how did the deal come together in the first place and then how long did it take and how close did it, you know, almost fall through. And there's so much I'm going into that. So that's cool. I'll check out that book. All right. Living in Tampa. What do you like to do for fun outside of work?
1: You know, at the end of the day, I'm a startup operator. My husband is a startup operator as well. So We do work a lot, admittedly. So for everyone who thinks that we spend our weekends every weekend at the beach, it's not <laughs> true. You can actually live in Florida and not do that. Um, you know, my way of decompressing is is cooking. I really love cooking. And so I treat that as my like fun, creative experience on the weekends. And if you take into account, I used to a restaurant review site. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm sort of an experimental person. Um, cooking isn't out of the norm there. And I always make a new recipe. I never, I never repeat the same recipes. Um, but it's really stress relieving for me. I don't know why, but I, I really love it.
0: Well, actually, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story, all the great work you're doing in terms of building up the ecosystem in Tampa, and the great advice too of, of how other regions can maybe uh, you know do something similar.
1: Thank you so much for having me.